If you haven't already done so, I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Matthew, to chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find one in the pew, and also our main text is in the bulletin. And also, from time to time, I'll reference a small section of one of the documents that we use to unite us in our Christian faith, called the Heidelberg Catechism. And that is in the Forms and Prayers book, the thin volume in the pew, on page 216. We'll come to that a little bit later in the sermon. Page 216. Now, if you were not here last week, this is building on that. Last week, we considered a little bit about the virgin conception, the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ. And in particular, that it is essential to the Christian faith. It is not one of those things that we can say, well, you know, people have different opinions. It is essential to the Christian faith that we affirm that. And it's reflected in the fact that it's included in the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is very brief, and it is the most ancient of the major confessions that we use, and yet we find, of all things that can be mentioned, the virgin conception mentioned in that. Have you ever noticed, though, how quickly the Apostles' Creed moves from the conception and birth of Christ all the way to his death? As it says, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. It just seemingly skips 33 years of Jesus' life. Why is that? It's not because Jesus' lifetime up to his death is insignificant. But it does underscore just how significant Christ's suffering is for his people. And there were many things that were not disputed in the ancient church about Jesus' life that he taught, that he, that he grew up. But the very suffering of Christ was disputed. People disputed how can God in any way be said to have suffered? And so this was something that needed to be confessed, and this is what we focus on this morning, the reality and the necessity of Jesus' suffering. And our text this morning, Matthew chapter 16, begins at verse 21. Let's hear together the word of the Lord. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, And be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So in the reading of God's word, let's ask his special blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your holy word. And we ask that this morning, by your Holy Spirit, you would apply it deep within us. Help us to be attentive, not only mentally, but spiritually. To hang upon the words of the scripture, to desire to know your will, and to be assured through what you reveal of our reconciliation with you. We ask these things in order that you would be glorified and your people blessed and the world helped. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
There are some things which need no long explanation. One of them is this, that suffering is a part of life as we know it, from the cradle to the grave. Every one of us could provide so many stories, beginning at some of your earliest memories. As I've spoken with people to ask them what are some of their earliest memories of suffering, they bring up things like the passing of a pet when they were three or four years old. One boy who was helping his dad clean the parakeet cage, and the parakeet got out, and within 20 yards, a cat got it. And the boy is not only thinking, you know, it's not just the the suffering of the bird, it's the boy who loved that bird and then feels this guilt. This is a broken world, and suffering is very much a part of it. If you think about it, nearly every decision is in some way designed to alleviate or to avoid suffering. What do you want to eat for dinner tonight? But somewhere at the bottom of that is a desire to escape hunger or to escape dissatisfaction as you try to make the right choice about what you're going to eat. We fear suffering. The desire for rest in order to avoid fatigue, another form of suffering. All of the suffering that we find associated with work, and yet for most people it's considered an even greater suffering not to work. And so we labor to avoid the pain of want, the pain of boredom, of aimlessness. Think of all the suffering involved in relationships. But then how much do we do to escape the suffering of not having relationships? To avoid loneliness. We have an overwhelming desire at times for intimacy and to be understood. Whole industries exist to alleviate, to minimize suffering. And yet, none of those industries and all the natural wisdom of human beings can get to the root. If you can't identify and deal with the very root of this suffering, where does it come from, why is it here, then you can never actually remove it. You can just mask some of the symptoms some of the time. What is the root? We don't know it by nature. All of science cannot tell us where all of this suffering came from not with the kind of authority that the scripture gives us, but God has revealed it. He has revealed it in the word. We receive it by faith. The Holy Spirit then impresses it upon us and confirms it in our experience. It's captured in many simple sentences in the scriptures. The wages of sin is death. From the time of sin, the Bible describes how there would be thorns and thistles, a picture of all of the pain that grows up alongside of things which originally would have not been toil, but simply good. Adam's work is afflicted. Child-rearing is afflicted. The root is sin. Scripture elsewhere summarizes it, Romans chapter 8, that all creation now groans. If you don't understand the root, you can't deal with it. But that raises a different question. Why does Jesus suffer? He himself is without sin. And at times it runs contrary to our expectations of who God is that he really would suffer. What does that mean? Can he actually experience things in the way that we do? And so this is what the Spirit lays before us this morning. He invites us, he provides you in his providence an opportunity to ponder the reality and the necessity of Jesus' suffering 
No matter how familiar it is, this is one of the touchstones of all of Christian doctrine. You never outgrow this. You may grow callous to it, and that's partly why we speak on this, why the Lord brings it up again and again in the Scripture, because in the very act of dwelling on what Christ has done, he begins to scrape away. It's like a a thick old lacquer on a table, and you're working at it to take it off, and then you see the raw wood underneath, The Lord restores to us a softened heart as we consider what Christ has done. So even at the outset of this sermon, if you feel a kind of almost guilt or even an indifference about how little you are moved at the thought of Christ's sufferings, may his Holy Spirit work in us even as we consider. Now the way that we're going to approach this passage is under two main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. But the first is simply this. Consider with me the reality and the scope of Jesus' suffering. The reality and the scope of his suffering. In fact, look at me at verse 21 of our passage. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Focus especially on the phrase, suffer many things. The term here, suffer, the Greek term, it's good that it's translated as suffer, but it literally means simply to experience something, to have a personal experience that is your own. But almost always when it's used both in the Bible and outside in other Greek writings, it has bad connotations. If you're to look at the way this word is used throughout the New Testament, the things that you'd see make your blood run cold. It's used of the experience of the boy who is possessed by a demon and he's thrown into a fire and he's thrown into water to drown him. Anyone who's been burned, anyone who has come close to drowning, this is suffering. This is the word that's used concerning a woman who had a seeming lifetime of botched medical procedures. It's a word used of extreme mental and emotional anguish. And it says of Jesus that he would suffer many things. Naturally, the disciples recoil at this just as, on one level, you recoil at the idea of anyone you love suffering. But then especially when their hopes are in Jesus that he is the deliverer. They are scared of this, even as Peter is trying to rebuke him. Now, there's an added layer to this in verse 16. In verse 16, they have just identified who Jesus really is when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. And it's at that moment Jesus begins to reveal to them all the suffering that's going to come upon him. And so, of course, they do not like this idea. Why must you now suffer? But there is a fact that has to be appreciated here. When you say, why must you now suffer? Because Jesus is going to suffer many things. The fact is that he had already been suffering. From the time of Jesus' conception, according to his true human nature, Jesus was always suffering. The miseries of life in this world, fallen as it is, and then special things providentially that were his case in particular. 
he dealt with. We have to imagine all the common sicknesses, discomforts of an infant's life, a, a toddler's life, scrapes and bruises. He was born to a particularly poor family and all that comes with that in the ancient world. And then on top of it, he was exposed his whole life to some of the extremes of humanity. For instance, he knew biting hunger. It's one of the major understatements of the Gospels when it says, after he had fasted 40 days, and then he hungered. 40 days without food. What must he have felt? And then burning thirst. The psalmist, in a prophecy concerning Christ, speaks about the cross that Jesus' tongue is clinging to his mouth. And from the cross he says, I thirst. Jesus experienced the full range of bodily discomforts, but not only bodily, also emotionally, mentally. Being a true human being means that he wasn't just a shell. He had a true human will, heart, mind. How have you felt if you have experienced any kind of rejection? Especially when you feel that you were the innocent party. And maybe you've been betrayed not just by one friend, but a whole group of people turns on you. Jesus went through that over and over throughout his life. His own family, it says, mocked and ridiculed him. And so he has not just the burden of being excluded, he has the anguish of being taken as somebody who is opposed to God when he's very much for the Lord. His whole life he is suffering these things. As it says in Isaiah, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The story of Jesus, when he looks upon Jerusalem, and it says that he is weeping and saying, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, would that I could gather you as a hen under my wings. Jesus had more love than anybody for others, and so to look upon the suffering of the world must mean that he felt more anguish all his life. But now Jesus says he's going to Jerusalem and that he's going to suffer from the scribes and the Pharisees even worse things to the point of being killed. I don't intend to belabor this. On some level, I know that we, almost everybody, even non-Christians, are familiar with the story of the crucifixion. I don't need to give very gory descriptions. It's enough to say that when the Romans flogged a person, it was not uncommon for the ribs to show. And the acacia, or the acacia crown that he was made to wear had thorns that long, and then it says they hit him with sticks. Imagine, don't imagine, but just understand, if you saw a member of this church innocently dragged out into a crowd and had that on their head and was hit with sticks, this is what Christ was suffering And that's just outwardly. Inwardly, we can't even begin to imagine. Because the things that made him sweat blood had to do with the weight that was going to be laid upon him by his own father. What was the agony when he says, My father, why have you forsaken me? And so he experienced pain of every kind, suffering of every kind. I don't think that anyone will ever know the measure of what he suffered. We'll have a kind of perfect knowledge in heaven, but perfect does not mean comprehensive. It only means that it will be sufficient to satisfy what is needful. 
How can we possibly know the sufferings of one who fulfilled the prophecy that says that he would drink to the dregs? That's the, the lingering sediment at the bottom of a cup. He would drink to the dregs the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. And yet scripture describes those who perish apart from the Lord as never satisfying that requirement. And so the reality and scope of what Jesus would suffer is truly immense. Now naturally, look at me at verse 22, Peter tries to put a stop to it. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. There's something on the human level here, but Jesus sees through to something else, which is a temptation. Verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Not that Peter was Satan, of course, but in this moment, he was aligned with the deceit, the will of Satan. He says, you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Focus on that last sentence. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Human beings were obviously involved in the torments that Jesus suffered. The scribes and the Pharisees who called for this false conviction, the crowd shouting. Obviously the Romans who were the actual agents of the physical torment. But when Jesus looks at it as a whole, he categorizes it not under the things of man, but the things of God. And indeed, this is how we must approach all of our suffering if we are people of faith. To see it as the things of God, if he should will, that you should suffer. And this brings us then to our second final heading, why it was necessary, why it was among the things of God that Jesus should suffer. Look with me again at verse 21. See what he emphasizes here. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Must. Why must Jesus suffer? It's familiar to some of you, but to some children, I wonder if this will be the morning that the lights turn on and you appreciate, perhaps for the first time deeply, Jesus had to suffer. There was no other way. Indeed, if there had been another way, as it says in Galatians, surely he would have went that way. His prayer in John 17, before the Father, as he's weeping and sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, his Father, if there be any other way, yet not my will but thine be done. Why must he suffer? And I lay before you two reasons. More could be added. In the first sense, we can say that he had to suffer if God was to be faithful to his word. God had promised that all of this would come to pass, and God cannot lie. Hundreds of detailed prophecies in the Old Testament bore witness that not only would the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed of God, God in the flesh, come among us, but that he would suffer and die. At this point, then, for Jesus to evade this would be to go back on all of God's word. Many of us are familiar with some of those prophecies, But none of us should ever become dull to the amazing nature of the historical fact that these things spoken long, centuries and centuries, sometimes thousands of years before Jesus came, 
would come to be. For instance, Genesis chapter 3, it's sometimes called the mother promise or the proto-evangelion, the first giving of the gospel, that God says that the descendant of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, representing Satan there, and yet that in the process he would be struck, he would be bitten or bruised on his heel, representing that one who is descended from Eve would die. As you move forward through the Old Testament, the pictures become more and more clear. In the time of Abraham, Abraham is told to offer up his son Isaac. And you may recall that in order to deliver the child of the promise, representing not so much Jesus, but representing the church, the children of the promise, in order to deliver the child of the promise, this beloved of the father, God had to provide a substitute. And so there's this ram caught in a thicket by thorns all on its head. And it turns out that Mount Moriah is the very mountain where Jesus will be crucified later on. All of these things, God can't go back on his word. As you get closer and closer, the prophecies become more and more explicit. Psalm 22, for instance, speaks of how they would cast lots for his clothing. The details are all consistent with crucifixion, which wasn't even a thing at the time when Psalm 22 was written. For instance, it describes cardiac rupture, bones disjointed but not broken. Verse 16, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Finally, not finally, but one of the clearest indications of what would come to pass is in Daniel chapter 9. I don't ask that you turn there, but you may want to study it later. Daniel chapter 9 is written about, well, greater than five centuries before Jesus comes. And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, he's told this. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. There's a lot there, and I am not going to unpack it at this time, but appreciate this. In the context, each of those weeks represents a period of seven years, and the text itself makes that plenty clear. And so what it's talking about is that 490 years from the decree of Artaxerxes, this is a public event known in the world, 490 years from that decree to rebuild Jerusalem would come some kind of atonement a sacrifice that would bring about everlasting righteousness. If the Jews knew anything, they knew that all of the offerings of bulls and goats did not provide an everlasting sacrifice. Or else they wouldn't need to keep doing them. That's the whole argument of the author of Hebrews. And like clockwork, because God has his own clock of redemption, 490 years following that is when Christ is crucified. Jesus cannot go back on his own word to his people. He told them he would come, and he came. But he told them he would suffer. And that leads to a second reason why he had to suffer, even what it speaks of there, to atone for our guilt before God. Appreciate again, brothers and sisters, no one made God do it. He was not morally obligated to provide this atonement. He would not be a bad God or a less good God if he had not chosen to redeem anyone. Any more than he is a bad God or a less good God for not providing atonement for the angels. 
God is a just God, a holy God. And yet you in particular, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, will not perish eternally because he was willing to suffer. Maybe you've wondered something. I have certainly wondered this. When I think about the crucifixion of Jesus, when you think about what was going on inwardly, spiritually, as God laid his wrath upon his son, have you ever wondered, do my sins actually deserve that? Am I that guilty? We can judge by our intuition, which the Bible warns us is terribly flawed. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. And we have a reason for bias, don't we? We are sinners and we're the offending party. And in our fallen state, we have hardly a taste of holiness. Or we can believe what scripture says unequivocally. That judged against the righteousness of God against whom we have offended, we do deserve what Christ has received. But then there is another way to look at it too, not instead of, but alongside of that. For whom did Christ die? In one sense, we can say rightly, he died effectually for his people, his church. I lay my life down for my sheep. But in another sense, we can say with the scriptures, as it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 22, rather chapter 2, verse 2, that he laid his life down as a sacrifice sufficient for the whole world. Had there been more whom he would save, he would not have to suffer more. Then think of the multitude of people. How many people do you think have come to faith? How many people did he elect? A number whom no man can number, and I'm willing to believe it's quite large. Among all of them, what are the most heinous sins committed? Again, in some sense, the slightest sin is worthy of death. But in another sense, you need to appreciate something here. That we need for a moment to step out of our self-focus, our individualism, and appreciate the people for whom Christ dies. Include some who have committed the most unspeakable, literally unspeakable. I would never discuss the details of what some people have done. You shouldn't want to, under, whether in private or anything. Horrid, unthinkable things that human beings have done and will do and do every day. And then you think when you know some of those things, what kind of judgment you wish upon such people when their evil is done against people you love. Christ suffered for the worst And though we never see what's going on internally, yet outwardly this display is to assure all that what he suffers is sufficient. The gospel, in spite of all of our comfort in this situation, many of us I know do experience some very hard things, and I don't mean to diminish that, but all things considered worldwide, we have a relatively comfortable life. And that sometimes makes us relate to God as if he's a relatively comfortable God with a relatively comfortable gospel. The gospel is not good news or just okay news for okay people. 
I'll say that again. The gospel is not okay news for okay people. The gospel is a ray of the purest light that pierces to the deepest recess of the cavernous capacity of man to do unspeakable evil and to bear tremendous guilt and shame. It goes all the way to the bottom. And so that if anyone, no matter how deep in sin, should look up to that light, and simply faith being the eye by which we receive that light, simply receive the promise of the gospel that Christ has died for your sins, that he is sufficient, then you can have confidence. The Father looks upon you and he says what he said over his own son, with you I am well pleased. With you I am well pleased. Had he not suffered so much, we would always be wondering. And so he's given it to us in this way, as it says in Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is tragic news relative to what Christ suffered. It's tremendously good news for us to be brought back to it. I can't think of a more clear summary of our faith in this respect than what our catechism says. I mentioned earlier, page 216 in the Forms and Prayers book, question and answer 37 describes it this way. During his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us body and soul from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. That is truly good news. It still doesn't address one question, though, and I bring this before you by way of conclusion. There's one question we haven't touched on, and it's not the intention of this sermon to deal with it in any kind of detail. But it's the question, if we have been forgiven, if those who trust him have been forgiven, why must we continue to suffer many things? Is it not the fact? And sometimes you are tempted to wonder that. Lord, if you love me, if you've forgiven me, why do I endure the things I do? And if you don't feel that way right now, you probably will eventually. This is the homework you do before the test to think through this. And again, it's not the purpose of this sermon to answer all of those questions, but only to draw your attention back to Matthew 16. Certainly, Jesus saw, didn't he, the expression of suffering on his disciples' face as they hear that he is going to die. Certainly Jesus could hear with his ears the anxiety and the fear in the voice of Peter. Just as the Lord knows exactly what is going on in your heart. He knows all of that. And for everything Jesus does not explain, he provides them with what is most essential. 
he provides them first with this assurance that he knows their suffering. And what comfort that would have brought to the apostles as they go through all that was to come to them. As you move through the book of Acts, it's just a series of persecution for them. And yet it says that they were able to rejoice then, having been counted worthy to suffer for him who suffered for them. Hebrews tells us that we have a faithful high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. If I had greater faith, it would be easier to believe that God knows what we're going through. He is God. He has infinite knowledge. He doesn't have to take on our flesh to know exactly what we experience because he created our synapses and our soul. And yet my faith is weak. And it is a great comfort in times when you are feeling crushed or so angry at your circumstances to be able to remember Christ in the garden sweating blood. To know he knows just as a human knows what I am going through and more. And God who knows us better than we know ourselves knows we need that. And Jesus provides that. And then he provides one other thing. Verse 16, he provides the knowledge of who he is. The Christ, the Son of God. And he tells Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. That's what gives us assurance concerning what he says will happen. On the third day, I will be raised. Which means that there is an end to our suffering. We know the root. The root is sin. But we also know the solution. The solution, long term, is resurrection as a consequence of Christ atoning for us. So there is a solution. May the Lord then use that in us, even as we minister this comfort to others. 1 Corinthians says, we comfort others with the comfort whereby we have been comforted in all our sufferings with Christ. May God help us to do that. I told you at the beginning, I'll say it again. We all know that suffering is a part of this life. There's no point in pretending that we can evade it. Technology, medicine, it helps. God's merciful. But real comfort is in knowing that we belong to Christ and that he has suffered for us. Let's go before him and pray and ask him to do that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing up through your word and through the catechism, through the wisdom of your church to highlight these most essential things, for bringing up those things that sometimes we would rather not discuss, but which turn out to be through your grace exactly what we need to consider. Our Lord God, we pray that for any who have not rested in Christ, you would please bring them to that rest, that they would trust in him, that they would see by the impression of your Holy Spirit that he is the perfect answer to all of our misery and the only hope. Our Father, we pray for all of us here on behalf of one another that you would please enrich us with great confidence and joy in these things. Thank you for having loved us. Thank you for having given to us an eternity of joy. Oh Lord, we thank you that even when we were in our sins, you set your eyes upon us to adopt us. And we ask that you would please help us in the midst of our sufferings to glean wisdom and in turn to give that to others who suffer. For in Jesus' name we ask all of these things. Amen.